start. Somebody went into labor on our behalf, so we're here. Somebody, when you were little and couldn't take care of yourself, was looking after you, right? Look at this. I love that. You, you got a dad who looks like he could take care of you and a mom who looks like she could take care of you. Phoenix, you're in good hands, aren't you? So the fact that people are laboring on our behalf from our earliest memories and uh, working hard, and then all of a sudden uh, you find yourself getting out to a place where you have a job and you never knew. It was so hard to labor. It is just hard. It's challenging to have a job and to, and to, to commit to it. And the best thing is when you get to a place where your faith and your job come together, uh, it's transformational. Well, you realize that what you do is part of a larger world uh, view, that you have a mission for life. I want to tell you uh, briefly about a guy named Nehemiah, uh, whose story is phenomenal. I, I really strongly encourage you to go read the book of Nehemiah this afternoon, because I'm going to give you just a little peek at Nehemiah. I'm not going to be able to give you all the textures and all the details that made his life so uh, quite uh, impactful and amazing in, in the labor he did. I want to give you a little peek into it, though. 2,500 years ago this month, um, things changed uh, radically for him. In the month of Kislev, in the 25th, in the 20th year, 445 BC, this is uh, the context for Nehemiah opening up what's called the book of Nehemiah. He's writing this. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, uh, Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire. Later it became Persepolis, but it was Susa, a phenomenally beautiful place, well built. I mean, somebody labored long and hard to design this incredible place. Uh, in, in the Euphrates River Valley and, and in what we call modern-day Persia. So here's Nehemiah writing about being in the citadel of Susa. Okay, he says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah. Judah is the southern region of Israel. It's like San Diego County. But within Judah, when he says came from Judah, really he's talking about Jerusalem. Uh, high up, uh, a couple thousand feet above the desert, about, above, you know, uh, uh, even, and, and from where the Dead Sea is to where Jerusalem is, is probably, you know, a 3,500-foot gap. So it's, uh, it's high up in, in Judah. So when you go to Jerusalem, it's all up. You're going up to Jerusalem. So Hanani comes back from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah says, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So the exile happened, if this is 445 B.C., the exile happened in 605 B.C., for almost 150 years or so. Uh, the people have been out of Jerusalem, but in 530, I know all these dates are just sticking in your head like this. In 530 BC, the Babylonian Empire was overtaken by the Persian Empire, the one that Nehemiah is talking about. And starting in 530 BC, people started to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. So they've been going back to Jerusalem uh, for a very long time, right? A very long time. And so this group had gone to see the progress. And this is what Nehemiah is asking about. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Well, that's old news. This is 445 B.C., the walls were broken down. The gates were burned in 605 B.C. There's people have been going back for the last 80 years. Why is there no progress? Why is the progress so slow? It's heartbreaking. So much so, Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. 
I'm guessing that as I've been talking these, these last few minutes, nobody has said, man, I'm getting all choked up about Judah and Jerusalem. It, it's ancient history. It's irrelevant to you. But for the last two weeks, haven't you felt on the urge of tears and travail as you watch what looked like a, just a, a, sto- a hurricane off the coast come on to land at Houston, creating all kinds of devastation? But because it's a typical news cycle, we think, well, you know, this will be done by tomorrow or the day after. Well, then two plus weeks later, it just gets worse and worse and worse. It's the greatest natural disaster of its kind ever in this country. It's devastating. How many of you have ever been to Houston? It's one of the most miserable places on the planet to visit. (laughs) On the best of days. It's always miserable in Houston. I can't tell you after the second service how many people came out and said, man, have you been to Houston? You were so right. I used to live in Houston. I'm from Houston. I, I, I said, gosh, I hope it didn't offend you. No, no, you were speaking the truth. It's miserable in Houston. So to think that it's miserable on the best days, it's so miserable that they have created Houston into one of the most attractive cities in the country. It's the fourth largest city in the country. There are more restaurants and great places to eat in Houston than in San Francisco and New York combined. Throw L.A. in there. Houston has made it just absolutely attractive to be there because there's nothing attractive about being there. (laughs) But now it's devastated. People are underwater, literally. People are forced out of their homes. They thought, well, this is just a storm. It's going to pass. No evacuation necessary. And now everybody is impacted. Does it not make your heart break to think about what would it be like for you right now? It was sprinkling out there. And all of us are going, oh, my gosh, it's raining. Oh. <laughs> quick, quick, let's get out of the rain. And we were all huddling under the little tarp going, oh, my gosh. Whoa. Whoa, whoa, what's going on? So here's Nehemiah in Susa, probably one of the most luxurious places literally on earth at that time. It didn't get much better than Susa. Beautiful, built out, extravagant, everything luxurious and available. And he's heartbroken over this place, a place he's never been, but a place his people came from. Lord, he says, he's praying now on behalf of him, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He's too humble to even say that I'm praying. Who am I but your servant? That's his prayer. It's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? That heartfelt prayer. I hope you're praying for Houston. I hope you're praying that, that God would be with people. I, I heard somebody re, you know, respond to this as an act of God. No, it's not an act of God. It's a natural disaster requiring an act of God. That's why we pray. In the midst of this natural disaster, Lord, would you meet these people in a way that would somehow, now that you've got their attention to the natural disaster, would you help them see your hand? I read a story about a lady who who's, she's with her baby and, and thought they could hang out in the house and it, it, was, it was not going to work. And so now they're wading through water and all of a sudden a boat shows up at just the right time, pulls her and the baby in. And she starts crying and she says, this is like an angel has answered my prayer. So the spiritual impact of people uh, realizing that, that they cannot control their own environment, it puts people in a place to say, Lord, who are you? And so we pray 
not to talk God into doing something he doesn't care about. We pray to say, Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified and people would be blessed even in this circumstance. And then he says this. It's interesting. He's a righteous man, but he says this. I confess the sins. He starts confessing generationally. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. There's seats right up here. We are well represented from UCSD right here. Thank you. And he goes on to say, we've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. This is a fascinating thing. He says, this is a hundred plus year old story because we have been unfaithful to you. What will it take for you to get our attention? Even having released us to go back out of captivity to rebuild, we're still not getting it done. But he's owning that. It's not, look at those fools in Jerusalem. Can't they get anything right? He's saying, Lord, this is who we are. It's a powerful moment. Then he, re he reviews for himself, but he, he says to the Lord, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. It's a 900-mile caravan trip from Susa to Jerusalem. It's about a 40-day trip. It's a long way to go, scary trip. Unless you have a lot of provisions and a lot of protection, nobody makes that trip. But he's saying, Lord, you've promised to bring your people back, and you are. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. That's a very powerful phrase. Revering your name. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. That, I would hope and pray, would be a description of us, that we would be people who want to revere the name of God. Does that describe you? Are you a person who says, you know what, in the midst of what I do, go to school, go to work, do all the things I do, raise kids, uh, take care of elderly parents, whatever you're doing. Lord, in all of that, in all my successes, in all my fears and failures, I want to revere your name. Does that describe you? Because that's the kind of people this world desperately needs. We don't need people with opinions, but not solutions. We need people who knows that the solution to all our opinions is the Lord himself, and they revere his name. They look for ways not to be religious, but to hold people uh, up to God. The world does not need more people going to church. The most depressing thing as a pastor is to see people come to church who have no interest in revering the name of God. Because there's way better things to do than waste your time or anybody else's by saying, I go to church for superstitious reasons. It's my lucky rabbit's foot toward life. It's irrelevant, but it makes me feel better. While you're here, you may as well revere God, right? The whole point of knowing God, God didn't send Jesus into the world to make it possible for people to go to church. He came into the world so that we could revere his name and become a church, a people called together, gathered in his name, instructed, inspired, commissioned and confirmed, and then sent out into the world in his name. So he's saying, Lord, listen to the people who delight in revering your name. I hope you're one of those people, no matter how out of it you might feel you are, how inconsistent you might be in your faith, that you say, Lord, my ultimate prayer is I want to revere your name. Your will be done to that end. That will set you free no matter where you are. 
And so he says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who? Who is this man he's talking about? And then he gives us this really powerful phrase. very simple. I was cupbearer to the king. Apparently this man he's going to try to influence is the king. It turns out cupbearer is not some irrelevant position. It's not, a, would you like fries with that, your honor, or your, your highness? It's, it's the cupbearer is the closest person to the king. He's an advisor to the king. It's like if you were the, uh, you as a man or woman uh, running the largest organization in the country, all of a sudden received a call 10 years from now, let's say, or some people who are in the last service have received this call, I'd like you to come and be a secretary. That would be an absurd thing to say to somebody. I, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm the CEO of this massive company. One of our members is a, runs a 20,000, 100,000 person company, one of the largest companies in the world. And so he said, I'd like you to be a secretary. It would sound insulting, wouldn't it? I'd like you to be a cupbearer. Oh, really? What kind of secretary would you like me to be? Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Interior, uh, Secretary of, and all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, this is a very powerful, responsible position. That's what it means to be cupbearer to the king. I can't tell you the rest of the story. This is why you have to go home and read it. But when Nehemiah, in this great anguish over Jerusalem, is in the presence of the king, the king, Artaxerxes means righteous king, said, hey, what's up? Why are you so upset? And Nehemiah says, my heart's broken for the people of Jerusalem. Artaxerxes knew the story. He said, wow, what can, what can I do to help? Next thing you know, Nehemiah is on his way with provisions and protection and a plan to come to Jerusalem and to bless that city and to transform that city, to build the walls, to bring the people together, to confront the enemies of God's people, to confront the enemies within God's people, to refute the false prophets, to stand the people together, literally all of them, and read, have the word of God read to them to the point that they're weeping, saying, we have failed to listen and respond to God's word. He starts confronting the people in the community who are so wealthy at everybody else's expense. He says, you folks are ripping off your brothers and your sisters by not giving freely. You're giving them food, but at a high price, and you're loaning them money to buy the food that you grow and own. They repented. They, they absolved everybody of debt. The community started to come together. They built the walls in 52 days. What had not happened in 150 years happened in 52 days. Nehemiah stayed for 12 years, used his own money, his own passion, his own time, his own influences to lift up the people of God. It was an incredible labor of love, transformed them, and we would not be here today but for what he did 2,500 years ago. This is the power of people's labor on behalf of the present and future generations. I was cupbearer to the king. How would you describe you? I'm a student in high school. I go, I'm a student in junior high. I am a resident at UCSD Medical Center. I am a professor at UCSD Medical. I'm a principal at Stanley Middle School. Uh, I, I'm a salesperson. I, whatever. How do you? I'm a mom. I, I, I have two kids. I hide from them hours a day. Um, <laughs> how would you describe yourself? I was a cupbearer to the king. For Nehemiah, is this an excuse or a strategy? Is it an excuse? I'm such a busy guy. Somebody else's call. Uh, I really am too big, too important, too busy, too removed. I've got things to do. After all, I am cupbearer to the king. Or was it for him an opportunity to leverage everything he had in his sphere of influence to say, Lord, what can I do to use this to honor and glorify you and bless people in your name? So do you see your current circumstances as an excuse not to serve God? Lord, I, I can't use my time, talent, and treasure for you. It might cost me something. I might need it. 
Really? Okay then. Or do you see your current circumstances as a strategic platform for serving God? Well, Lord, I'm infirm. I can hardly move. You can pray, right? Well, Lord, I'm just a kid. I don't have anything. Uh, you can talk to people about the need, right? Well, Lord, and all the excuses sound so thin. If Nehemiah stood up here and we, I said, hey, Nehemiah, we got some big challenges as a church, opportunities. We, we had a lot of reasons why it's going to be hard. We'd like you to hear them so you could absolve people of their responsibility. You start to tell your story, and knowing Nehemiah's story, you go, oh, forget it. It sounds too flimsy for me to tell you my story, my excuse. But if Nehemiah was standing here and he said, hey, um, you're my co-laborers. What I was doing 2,500 years ago, God's given you to do today. What are you doing? And if everybody's had to stand up and say, well, at this point, I'm simply asking God for direction. I want to honor and glorify him. I don't know what to do. Way to go, man. Next. Wow, be powerful, right? This is the power of Nehemiah. Why? Because he was moved by God. He responded with his own resources and influence. He rooted his actions in God's word. He took practical steps to overcome barriers. He started with the end in mind. He ended up glorifying God and blessing people. Does that sound attractive to you? Because that's what the world needs and what the world is attracted to. Nobody is attractive when you stand up and say, I go to church. Really sorry about that, man. That's exactly what I said when I was in high school. My friends who went to church, they go, that's a, what a waste of time. He said, no, it's not a waste of time. They have snacks. I'm like, yeah, yeah, great. But when I came to know Jesus, I started asking, it was because I was asking the question, why? Why do you do this? And I met some people who said, why? Why do I do this? It's God's mission that shapes my beliefs and behaviors. Well, what's God's mission? Well, I learned what God's mission was. And God fulfilled his promises in his mission to the world. And then he conscripts us to be his partners in his mission to the world. It blew my mind. It opened up my mind to the fact that I had no idea. That God wants me to be part of his mission to the world? I'm a high school kid. Yeah, he does. He wants to start by shaping your beliefs and your behaviors around his mission. It will transform you, and God will use you to transform other people. So how about you? How about you? Where you sit today? You need no special equipment or special permission. Not necessarily even any special training. It starts with, all right then. Count me in. What can we learn from Nehemiah? Commit to our God-given mission. Confess our total dependence on God. Seek to honor God and bless people in our sphere of influence. Practice righteousness, justice, and love wherever we can, starting with my family and my friends. Be clear and creative in overcoming barriers. Barriers are nothing more than opportunities to see God work, to overcome what you cannot overcome. And what's the point of all this? It's that our faith grows as we build a life with God. Our faith grows as we build a life with God. And so, Lord Jesus, uh, we are in your presence recognizing, but for you, uh, we can't build a life. We have no faith that can withstand the challenges within life. But in you, Lord, you've given us access to you. Our heart beats with yours. Our mind links with yours. Your resources are poured out onto us. We get to worship you, not just in word, but in deed. We get to be part of a transformed and transformational community. Lord, we want to be people who revere your name. And we pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Good morning. I'm Natalie. I'm the high school director here. And it's great to worship with you today and move into a time of communion together. And um, wherever we find ourselves, whatever space we're in, God promises that his presence is with us. In communion, 
the Eucharist, the table, uh, is a place where um, we get to press pause. We get to set aside our distractions. We get to maybe put away the to-do list that we already started creating in our head. Uh, and we get to, to pause and remember who God is, that he is a God to be revered and to be in awe of. We get to remember the things that he's done in our life and the way that he's been faithful. Uh, so for you, I don't know what, what place you find yourself in this morning. Maybe you are, are in a place where you feel lonely. Maybe you feel like you're in exile. And you just need to remember that God is, is with you and he's for you and he hears you. Uh, maybe you're in a, in a place where um, you just feel tired. Maybe you're a parent and you didn't get much sleep last night. And you just need to remember that, that God is with you and he is for you and he wants to carry burdens with you. Uh, and maybe you're in a place where you feel really joyful. You feel really at peace. And you just need to sit and remember that, that God in life with Jesus is the source of that joy. Um, and so we come to this place wherever, whatever our posture is right now, we come to the table and we, we pause and we, we recognize who God is in our life and who he says we are because of that. Scripture says that on the night Jesus was betrayed, that he gathered with his disciples and he took bread or gluten-free matzah. I don't know which one is better. Um, and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he says, take, eat, um, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my blood that is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So as you come to the table as a follower of Jesus, what do you need to remember about God this morning? Uh, what do you need to hear? He's a good father. Uh, he's a good shepherd. Uh, he hears you. He's with you and he's for you. Um, so I'd like to invite up our communion servers for the morning. And as they prepare, um, if you proclaim that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, this meal is for you. And if you haven't made that decision yet, then I invite you to sit and, and maybe wrestle with what inviting Jesus into your life might look like, what that might mean for you. Uh, but in a, in a posture of letting go and receiving, um, let's maybe open up our palms as I pray for this time. Heavenly Father, you uh, are just that. You are a Heavenly Father, a good God, a, a Father that is to be revered and to be in awe of. God, wherever we find ourselves this morning, would we just hear that you are with us, that you are with us here and now, but also when we leave this place, God. Um, would we look for you in our daily lives, God? Would we give you the glory for um, everything that happens. Uh, God, would we trust you with our lives? Would we recognize that following you and living life with you is the best way to live? Uh, so God, we just are thankful for this space to press pause and to be in your presence. Uh, God, we know that you fill us up with all that we need if, need if we come to you in honesty. Um, so we love you and we thank you so much for this place to gather um, as your people. In your name, amen. So two will be at the back and two will be up front and come whenever you would like.
glory, glory, hallelujah. Well, we are in our own uh, Nehemiah moment right now as a church. I want to ask Nicole Pearson and Drake Oswald to come forward. Uh, Nicole is on our board. Uh, Drake is on staff. Uh, he directs, uh, manages our campus. And uh, I want to ask them a couple questions about what's, what's going on. So, Nicole, what's going on? <laughs> A lot going on. Um, I'm sure most of you have been keeping tabs on what has been happening with the plans to sell the property in Holland. And so hopefully you know now that that's not happening. We're not moving forward with Holland. So thankfully, we've had a wonderful team of very intelligent people 
Drake being one of them, and many other board members and people in this congregation really looking to see what would a campus remodel look like and how could we really transform this campus to be a lighthouse here and now to this community. We have such a huge opportunity out in front of us and we really wanted to transform LJCC into a place where we could have people here every day of the week and during preschool hours even. Whereas right now it's just very challenging to have people here during those times and so we're more of a preschool with a church versus a church with a preschool, which is what the, the vision really has transformed into. So with all of that being said, um, I'll, I'll say that it's going to take everybody here to really make that happen. It's, it's going to be expensive. There's definitely some money that has to go into this construction process. And the amazing thing is we all have an opportunity to be involved in what God is doing here. And it's, it's, it's exciting. If you really look through, we've got uh, pictures of the campus out there. You can talk to members of the board. We have videos on the website. And, and there's a huge thing that God's doing that all of us here get to be a, a contributor to. So I would say that it's going to be sacrificial, the giving that's required to make this happen. But I think we've all seen time and time again that God loves a cheerful giver and he loves it when we trust him with our money. And he will bless us and he will bless this community and this congregation as a result of our faithfulness and just really um, believing in the mission that he's given and the vision that he's given, Steve and the board and, and this church. So that's cool. Thank you. So Drake, how are we going to do that? Yeah, so I'm Drake, the uh, facilities director here, and um, I've had the uh, pleasure over the last year of being on a design team looking at what we could um, do on the property, what kind of remodels would work. And, um, and that team has had the privilege of standing on the shoulders of, of tons of teams over the years who have looked at remodels. And um, uh, so we just pulled all that together, and I'd love to walk you through a little 3D um, uh, video here and show you what we're going to do. So here we're on the patio. We've got room two on the left and the sanctuary on the right. And room two has big doors that open up on both sides, so that connects us to the back of the property. And here we're looking into the sanctuary. Um, the sound booth has moved. And there it is all the way in the back. And behind the sound booth is a wall that will really stop all the... Um, noise from the playgrounds and the kitchen um, and kind of creates a little service hallway with a prep area and now we're outside and on top of the roof there you can see air conditioners <laughs> there's room two from the back side And this um, room here is a small meeting room we'll also use for a bit of storage. And we have a hallway that's nice and wide without any clutter in it. And uh, room two there, you can see a TV on the right, and that'll really be able to host groups of various sizes and be an overflow spot too. And then the video doesn't show very well, but um, doesn't show at all, but the bathrooms stay where they are, but they get a little bigger and they get a lot more comfortable. Um, so they'll be uh, ADA compliant, which means we'll be able to welcome um, all kinds of guests with all kinds of needs. 
Um, so we're excited about that. And then just to hit the air conditioning note again, I see a lot of you holding a bulletin waving back there. So we're going we're gonna to solve that. We're going to have um, climate control in the front and the back and um, throughout the, the new space there. Um, so yeah, we're really excited about uh, the project and I'll be out on the patio to answer any questions and give you a layout. And um, we just really invite you to dream about uh, what God's going to do in this space and, um, and, you know, like connecting Steve's sermon, like what the labor, you know, I have a labor right now of uh, controlling contractors and telling them when they can and can't work. And, um, and we all have a labor of like contributing financially. And afterwards, maybe God's speaking to you about a labor um, of, uh, of how you're going to use this space, how it's going to glorify God. Nicole, Drake, thank you so much. As uh, the offering, uh, the uh, ushers come forward to receive the offering of the morning, the, the question is, well, what, do you, what are we asking you to do? Certainly, we're asking you to pray. We're asking you then to pray about what God would have you do uh, by way of contributing. So uh, it might be that you are going to give $20. Taylor, how about 20 bucks? Is that good? Think about it. So as you think about 20 bucks, that might be a stretch for you. Maybe you're thinking, I, I think I could give $20,000. Great. Whatever it is, it's not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. As you think about what I want to be able to say down the road is, I got to help build this church. You won't be adding a dollar amount to that, but you'll be able to say with great joy, you know, you'll be driving by here someday and say, you know, I got to help build that church. So don't miss the opportunity. And that was part of Nehemiah's message. This is our opportunity to stand together for God. And so uh, we want to be able to come back next weekend and say, here's the money we raised. We need to raise $440,000. And so that's going to be gifts of 20 or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, in some cases 50,000. And one family said, look, we're in for uh, 55,000. And so uh, it's not going to be easy for anybody, but it's going to be worth it for everybody. So uh, go home and online uh, make a pledge, a, a commitment. Take, a, take any piece of paper out of that seat back in front of you and just write down your name and here's how much I'm going to give. Now, when you say you're going to give it, you don't have to actually fulfill the, the commitment until the end of the year. Uh, but we need the number now so that we can sign contracts and commit. We can't take on debt uh, on the church. We've spent the last year reducing our debt to the tune of now we have $300,000 more to support ministry than we did at the beginning of the year because we've reduced our debt. So we don't want more debt. We want to be able to pay for this. Uh, we're about halfway there. And so we'd like you to consider what you will give that you'll pay off by the end of the year, but that you'll commit to by Wednesday. We want to know by, by Wednesday what your commitment will be so that we can announce it next Sunday at our kickoff Sunday. So literally, don't walk out of here saying, well, it didn't, it didn't include me. It includes you. It includes you for whatever number represents your heart for this church. And even if you say, I, I just don't have any money right now, you can pray. Will you write down on your piece of paper, I have nothing I can contribute financially, but I commit to pray. Because really what's most important to us is the thing that was most important to Nehemiah. It, it's the big answer to why. God's mission. I want to be a part of it. So Lord, we bring our tithes and offerings before you this day, even as we think about this larger uh, other commitment to getting this job done, to create a campus that is welcoming and inviting and supports uh, growth as we try to put our arms around people in your name. Lord, we come not... Uh, asking you to bless what we're doing. We come asking that we can be part of what you are doing and what you are blessing. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue worshiping the Lord as the offering of the morning is now received.
thank you for being people who want to revere his name and walk with him in his love and his grace. Not only to be blessed by him in that process, but to be a blessing wherever you go. This is the greatest privilege and purpose in being alive. I hope it's your purpose and your privilege one day at a time. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you as you do that. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.